Hello and welcome to episode 207 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, joined once again by... Jason Rebettowitz. Hello, Ian. Good to be back. Hello, Jason. How are you, sir? Uh, sleepy. I don't know what day it is or what time it is. Where I think I'm home. No, I'm pretty sure I'm home, but happy to be back. Well, welcome back. We'll make this a quick show this week because Jason is, in fact, just off a 13-hour flight from Japan. And what a way to go. We gave him time to splash some water on his face, and now we're recording the podcast. So we'll make it a quick show and come back in full force next week. But Jason, yeah, you you were you turned your attention away from aviation over the past week or so and dove right into the rail. So how, how was Japan? How, how was the flight it there? It was good, and yeah. Then, uh, and then we'll talk about the flight back. Yeah. I did the thing where I only talked about trains for about a week. But that's pretty much what we did in Japan. Went kind of all over Tokyo and Westrum there. So Tokyo, Hiroshima, Osaka, Nagoya, Toyama, Kanazawa, kind of all over the place, just riding the trains in, in the way we don't typically get the chance to do here in the U.S. And, and my first train ride back from JFK this afternoon would, would, would prove that our experience <laughs> here is awful in comparison. It's it's another way of life entirely. But it was great. Flew jaw both ways, nonstop on miles, which was nice. Economy on a 787 on the way out there, which was not so bad because jaw is the only airline in the world operating the, the 787 in the originally intended seats across, which is a nice treat. That was nice. And then scrounged together enough points. Thanks, mom and dad, for the assist on that one, since my points were tied up, tied up in my uh, original booking that I couldn't cancel. But some uh, first class reward availability popped up, and I, I couldn't couldn't say no to that. And so how was it? It's interesting. Jaws first class on the 777, it's not a new product, but the aircraft were probably designed in the mid to early 2000s even. So the seat itself is fine. The the entertaining system is fine. The, the Wi-Fi is fine. But really the, the service from the second you step foot in the terminal off of a train, almost certainly, and then through the moment you get off the plane is just like nothing else I've experienced. It was really, really great. They were above and beyond helpful, attentive. The food in the lounge and on board the aircraft was absolutely amazing. I wish I could do it again, but it might be a while before I scrounge up enough points to be able to do that again. You got to repay your parents with a flight somewhere first. I do. I do. I, I have the miles to do it, but I had uh, my original booking. I didn't want to cancel that until I had something else booked. So I was kind of in a limbo. But yeah, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to figure out a way how to repay that. You and I have both fallen prey to cancel and rebooking, and then the rebooking doesn't work. Yes, and you click you're on like, the well, button and it just no. says, well, you know, <laughs> the availability was there, but now it's not. I, I really now didn't want not. that to happen. Yeah, especially not when you're in Japan. No, but no, that, it was a great trip. Everything went as uh, planned. Flew out of Narita both ways. Didn't mean to do that. Originally, we were booked on uh, United out of Haneda in economy both ways. This was a very different trip at the end of the day, what was actually booked. But Narita, man, it's out there. But you got to ride an extra train. I did. I did. A couple un unexpected extra trains, which was nice. But if, if one goes to Haneda, there's a chance you can take a monorail to the airport. Ooh. 
didn't get to do that. But I know uh, some things next happened time. this week. There were some airplane-related shenanigans and stuff that I was not paying attention to at all. So uh, let's talk about what happened because I really don't know. All right. Well, let's start with what happened today, which is Wednesday, March 15th, 2023. Today was the FAA's Safety Summit, the Surface Aviation Surface Safety Summit that was put together in the wake of multiple runway incursions that occurred over the past few months. After this safety summit was announced, there were more runway incursions that happened, including one that happened last week at National Airport in Washington, D.C. And the topic of today's safety summit was basically, or the the gist of the safety summit today was basically, the system is safe, but we need to make sure that it stays that way and actually gets safer. So the summit was opened by the FAA's acting administrator, Billy Nolan, and the bulk of his comments were that there's confidence in the system, there are, you know, thousands of safely operated flights every day. There are issues that are cropping up. Let's pay attention to those and let's not be complacent and let's make sure that we're, you know, making the system safer. And then they broke off into to smaller groups and things like that, including the participants included the NTSB, members of the FAA, pilots, flight attendants, various unions, including air traffic control, so what have you, all coming together to try and make the system safer. What's interesting to me is I hadn't seen a a slide that showed the runway incursion statistics, because we've talked about a spike in incursions. That's been kind of the media lingo. There's been a spike in incidents. And then I looked at the actual numbers, and I don't know if you can classify this as a spike, and and we'll put the graph in the show notes so everybody can see what I'm talking about. But I went and looked at the actual reported numbers from the FAA's runway safety statistics. The statistics go through the 10th of March, but, but I just graphed through February because obviously the full month statistics are going to show you know a fuller picture than the partial month statistics but we'll put a link and you can go check out the the most up to date statistics i just don't see the the spike in incidents i'm not seeing that and certainly i think the question of the severity of recent incidents is a different conversation and one i think we've been having yeah i, I think that's exactly the point that yes there's definitely some heightened media awareness of this. And they acknowledge that at the summit, that every single little go around, no matter how insignificant, gets a, a hit in the news these days, which is not not anything new, but it certainly to this extent is a bit new. But the severity of some of these incidents has definitely been <laughs> extremely alarming. Most noteworthy, of course, was I think the JFK incident between the Delta was a 739 and, and the American 777. That was not great. So it'd be interesting to see if there were, if there were, is really, are these incidents more noteworthy than incidents in the past? Because anecdotally, it kind of seems like it, but maybe it's just where there's more visibility on them these days. Yeah, I think we're kind of caught in between those two. I, I think the JFK incident and the incident in Austin at the beginning of February, I, I think those two things 
combined with the kind of close proximity to the other incidents involving the Qatar Airways flight that was departing Doha that got so much media attention, as well as the United flight that was leaving Hawaii, both of which dove towards the sea after departure before recovering. I think all of that has kind of come together to shine a much bigger spotlight on it. But I don't think that's I'm not saying that to say, oh, there shouldn't be the safety summit. We shouldn't pay attention to that. Not at all. I mean, this is good to pay attention to. I'm just trying to put the the numbers in context. I mean, for instance, the incident at DCA this uh, past week, that involved a Republic aircraft that crossed the runway as a United A319 was, was beginning its departure roll, crossed the runway a few thousand feet down the runway because they had made a wrong turn. They were supposed to cross a separate runway and they, they crossed the active runway. But the United flight was moving it at six knots. So they, they were very easily able to slightly press the brakes after moving the throttles out of takeoff position and then just circle back around on the taxiway to, to depart. But it still got a lot of coverage. A few minutes later. But it still got a lot of coverage. And so, you know, there I think drawing a distinction between how many incidents there are and how severe some of these incidents are. And I don't know if the statistics go into the severity of the incidents. The FAA classifies the severity of the incidents, but the, the statistics I'm seeing don't have that classification readily available. So that's one of the things I want to look into a little bit more to see if the severity of the incidents has increased or if the if there's been an increase in a number of severe incidents. Yeah. I don't know exactly what the 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 hope and the intent of this summit was, I guess it was to release data to, to show what was going on, what's happening, what can be done to prevent more of these from happening in the future. I, I don't know if we'll actually get that outcome, but at least all the right eyeballs are pointed in the right direction. So that's a, a good start. Right eyeballs in the right direction. We'll take it. Let's talk about Canada. Oh, you don't hear that one often. Not often enough. I, I love a good Canada conversation. Yeah, Canada's great. They're just usually pretty uh, pretty quiet country for uh, all things airline related. They don't have that many, yeah. but they have more than ever. Well, they have more than ever, but they're about to have one fewer. So Canada approved the WestJet acquisition of Sunwing. So Sunwing is known for its package travel. You book with them, you get the flight, you get the the hotel, the kind of all-inclusive resort in, in the Caribbean kind of thing. And WestJet wanted to buy them and there was a lot of back and forth. And finally, they've gotten the okay to do so. The government said, but you have to do a few things. So so Sunwing has to extend its holiday package offerings to five new Canadian cities. I'm not sure if there's a stipulation on what size those cities are. So you know, <laughs> I, I doubt dozens it's of new potential yeah. passengers. Yeah. The combined airline must also maintain its capacity on routes most affected by the merger. They didn't specify exactly which those were, but they seem to be major routes between Canada and Mexico and the Caribbean because the Competition Bureau in Canada said that, quote, a merger of the two carriers would create a monopoly on more than a dozen routes between Canada and Mexico or the Caribbean and would lessen or prevent competition on more than 30 others to those same destinations. So something that the, the competition bureau is is keen to head off, but the merger has has been approved nonetheless. It'll also be interesting to see how they as part of the approval of the merger agreement. Canada says they have to keep a few of their headquarters 
as well as grow staff, which is not usually what happens, at least at first, in a merger agreement. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see how that works out. Or how that's actually enforced in the long run. Yes, or how it's actually enforced. Like you said, any company that after a merger promises to increase the number of employees, they're lying. It's always a lie. Maybe it won't come tomorrow, maybe not next year, but in two years, they're going to start cutting employees and the the headcount's going to go down. It always does. That's how these things work. I hate that promises are made to regulators like this and there's just no... No real enforcement teeth that, hey, in two years from now, you lied. You said you were going to have more employees somehow. Now you're going to have more employees. It, it just it never happens. So it, mergers are, are good in that it, it creates a, a larger, more, I don't know, capable airline. But I wish companies like this wouldn't just lie about having more employees or, or, or maintaining separate headquarters. Like how many times do we have to see that this just – this is not – what ends up happening at the end of the day. It's very, very Charlie Brown in the football. Yeah. I can't think of a single instance where this is actually the case, but whatever. Maybe Canada is a land of, you know, unicorns. I don't know. Sure. Why not? In what I find more interesting news, Flair Airlines had four of their 737 Maxes repossessed last week. And now they have sued the lessor for $50 million saying that the seizures were unlawful. So the lessors seized in very kind of dramatic – I don't know how dramatic it was, but dramatic enough to show up at three in the morning and take the logbooks and the maintenance records to take back possession of those planes because they say Flair had defaulted on payments multiple times and owed millions of dollars. Flair says – we owed about a million dollars and we were a couple days behind. They're also alleging that the leasing corporations and Airborne Capital Incorporated, which is the aviation leasing management company for these aircraft, Flair is saying these companies found a better deal for the aircraft. And so basically, quote unquote, set Flair up to default on these lease payments so that they could then repossess the aircraft and place them with another airline. Now, they filed a lawsuit, so so they, I guess, intend to prove this in court. They've offered no proof yet, and Flair's CEO said, well, I'm not going to name names right now. And for their part, the leasing companies have said that Flair's argument is without merit, is the most polite way I can put it, and probably the most polite way they can put it. But it'll be interesting to see how far this goes in court, because this is a bizarre one. This is interesting. Uh, not something you typically see in a country like Canada, or, or even the US, really. This is this feels more like a fly-by-night African or, or Southeast Asian airline that has an a- aircraft taken back. I mean, I, I just saw one of Flair Air's Max today at JFK Terminal 1. Uh, clearly, that one was not repossessed. But it almost feels like the leasing company was just waiting for that exact moment where, where maybe they Flair forgot to set like auto pay and they were five minutes late on payment, so they snatched the aircraft back. Yeah, Flair's saying that they had been working with the leasing company. They Flair's not saying they weren't behind. They're saying we were behind, we owed a million dollars or so, and we were a few days late, but we were working with them and they seized the planes anyway. And the lessor, the leasing companies are saying, no, 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 no. You owed us a bunch more than one million and you hadn't paid for months. 
And then Flair says, you were just trying to get the plane so that you could lease them to somebody else for a better deal. And the leasing company says, no, I don't think I so. I mean, it, that, that's this interesting is because- Very, very strange. I didn't think the market for gently pre-owned Maxes was that hot that the leasing company would need to do this. I thought the market was kind of flooded with availability of off-lease Maxes, No. If you had said that they were doing this with with a wide body, I would say, okay, maybe. But yeah, I, I didn't know the market was that tight. So I'm keen to see if this goes anywhere or if this is all just bluster so that they can settle up and, and move on. Uh, but, but very strange. Mm. Well, keep an eye on that one. We move to Saudi Arabia, or we switch over to Saudi Arabia. I don't, I don't think either of us are moving there anytime soon. I, I hope not. But if we did, we could soon fly a new airline. But why is the question? Why? That's a really, really good question. So this week, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund started a new airline called Riyadh Air. They are going to be positioning themselves as competitors to the likes of Emirates, Qatar Airways, and Etihad. They're even run by former Etihad Airways chief executive, Tony Douglas. That airline will still be separate from Saudi Arabia's existing state carrier, Saudia. Both airlines ordered a bunch of 737 MAXs this week. Riyadh Air opens up with 72 787-9s. That's a lot. That's a lot of planes. So 39 787-9s in a firm order, options for 33 with deliveries to begin in 2025. And then Saudi is also taking, ordering 39 more 787s with a handful of, of Dash 10s and the balance will be the Dash 9. So, I mean, 120, 121.787s going out the door, all of them going to Saudi Arabia for two airlines, one of which is starting from nothing. Yeah. And as you said on Twitter, they'll probably all somehow be taking up units from Heinen. It's the only possible explanation. I asked on Twitter, I said, I do not get it. I said, someone please explain this to me like I am five. And the best explanation I got was along the lines of Saudi Arabia is trying to position itself as a transit and tourism hub. They have seen what the likes of Emirates and Qatar and to a much lesser extent Etihad have been able to do, as well as Turkish really. I think Turkish often gets left out in that, but but they have a very similar model. And they want a piece of that action. They want things to move to Saudi Arabia as far as transfers and things like that go. The question about what Riyadh Air will offer as part of an onboard product in the airport and all sorts of things, that is still kind of up in the air. But one would assume that if that's their positioning, it's going to be a much, much different airline than Saudi is. Yeah, it's just awfully confusing. It's like if one day, like you said, Qatar or Emirates just decided, you know, we're going to spin up another sister mega connecting airline, but we're both going to be here. We're still going to have Emirates or Qatar, but we're just going to have this other massive airline in the same country. It's just, what? Like We knew this was coming. This was not 
announced overnight. We knew this was this exact business model was coming for a long time. I just don't, I didn't really expect it to actually happen because I still <laughs> don't understand it. Like there's a, a portion of the world's population that will not fly through Saudi Arabia, myself included. It doesn't matter if you call it Saudi or, or Riyadh Air, I will not fly this airline. I will not connect in Saudi Arabia ever, probably. But if you offer a compelling, low-cost, decent product to get people from A to B through C, most people don't care where C is. So yeah, maybe maybe this is a successful story here in the future, but maybe they just siphon off enough capacity to make it not viable for Emirates and Qatar and Turkish and Etihad to all be doing this, but maybe they know something we don't know. I would love to see some of the calculations that went into this. But the Saudi transport minister says that they're going to fly 330 million passengers through Saudi Arabia by 2030. How? Are they inducing an additional 330 passengers that just didn't exist in the past? They're just giving me the numbers and I'm just reading the numbers. What's interesting to me is that Jazeera Airways is starting a new low-cost carrier that will be operating in Saudi Arabia. So Jazeera is based in Kuwait. They're going to move next door and and operate a new airline in Saudi Arabia as well. The low-cost carrier is going to be based in Dammam. The Riyadh Airways is no surprise there going or Riyadh Air is going to be based in in Riyadh and and Saudi is based in Jeddah. So there's no continuity here. And it's very very confusing to me how they're going to make this work. I get the argument for this, but putting this into practice seems like it's going to be a very, very challenging, challenging thing. But they've got some years to make it work. So we'll revisit this, I'm sure, once they actually launch service. Yeah, maybe we're wrong. And in a few years, 330 million people will be flying Riyadh Air to Saudi Arabia to go see that super long city thing that they're building for trillions of dollars. That was the total number for Saudi Arabia, not just Riyadh Air. Ah, okay. But still, it's a big number. Yeah. I don't know. There's a lot going on in that country that I, I do not understand and that most people don't understand, but whatever. I'm sure Boeing's happy. It's a <laughs> yeah, lot of airplanes. I think that's the top line right there. Speaking of things we don't quite understand, but this one makes a little bit more sense. ANA is launching a Zip Air competitor. So Zip Air is Japan Airlines, low-cost carrier flying from Japan to the US West Coast. ANA, I don't think this surprises anybody, is launching its own version, but it's going to be called Air Japan, not to be confused with the pre-existing ANA's Air Japan, which operates some ANA flights. Okay. I got that right, right? Yeah, I have actually flown the Air Japan pre-existing subsidiary. They they operated 7.6s and some 7.3s, I think, to some close-in destinations. I think I flew them to, to uh, Hong Kong. It's just so hard that they'd spin up a subsidiary with that same name. Like, come on. They already had the stationery printed. They did. They had the business cards and everything. But come on, pick a different name. This is confusing. But I, of course, welcome more low-cost options to to Japan, having literally just come back from there. Oh, God, that's still today. <laughs> I, I just wish they would come to the East Coast because I know Zip Air has some outrageously low fares out of the West Coast of the US. So I, I would very much welcome that here on the East Coast. I'll make some calls. Okay. And see what we can well, do. We'll see what can happen. Yeah. 
Okay, let's close out the show with some quick things. Airbus and the German Aerospace Center had a bit of fun last week playing Sniff My Gas. Excuse me? Exactly. I missed a lot last week. I was not paying attention. You missed this one. You're going to have to explain this one a little better. So Airbus is all in on alternative fuels, working its way towards hydrogen. But in the meantime, they want to certify everything on 100% sustainable aviation fuel, asterisk, sustainable under only certain circumstances. But what they did was fly the A321XLR in front of the German Aerospace Center's Falcon 20. The Falcon 20 is specially fitted with a bunch of scientific instrumentation, including a very long pointy probe that takes the exhaust gas coming out of the A321XR and then they measure all of the particulate matter, what's coming out of the engine when it's burning 100% SAF in both engines. So this was the first time an Airbus narrowbody had run on 100% SAF in both engines. And this is the first time that they're taking these kind of measurements to understand not only the carbon dioxide that, that's coming out of the air or coming out of the engines as part of the exhaust, but also what else is coming out of the engines as part of the exhaust based on the feedstock for the particular SAF. Because That'll be different depending on the feedstock, what comes out. So interesting to follow along with. They were flying both near and far flight. So the the closest they got was 100 100 meters. And then they were flying a little bit further away as well to kind of get, um, get sniffs from all over, I guess you could say. Neat. Neat. Cool. Yeah, that's nice. Yeah. So not the first time that the DLR has done these types of things. They performed some flights with NASA a few years ago with NASA's DC-8 along similar lines, testing the exhaust gas and and things like that. But this one is pretty cool and and they'll continue those types of flights as they continue to develop the the SAF certifications going to work and things like that. Last week, we didn't talk about a Delta Airlines A350 being hit by gunfire in Santiago, mostly because the story sounded so outrageous. I knew that it probably wasn't true. And as it turns out, it wasn't because the airplane flew home the same day on time and actually arrived back in the United States a few minutes early. And guess what the bullet holes in the A350 really were? Well, having just recently flown a composite winged aircraft that looked like crap, even though it was only, I guess, six-year-old aircraft, it had more patches on the paint than it had paint left on the wings. So I'm going to assume it was just a crappy paint job. It's exactly what it was. Man, these composite aircraft are just a pain in the ass to keep the paint on, isn't it? And in this case, it it really is. made the news in a weird way. Yeah, in in a very weird way. So what happened was is there was an attempted robbery in Santiago. A group of armed robbers were trying to rob a shipment being handled by Latam, and the Delta A350 just happened to be in close proximity. Someone posted a video from the airfield of the aircraft and said, "Look, there's bullet holes in it." And then that turned out to just be paint chips. Whoops. Yeah, so it's not great. I mean, kind of, you know, puts another spotlight on A350 paint jobs. But as Jason mentioned, he was on a 787 earlier this week, and that's been an issue on the wings as well. So I guess composite paint jobs hard. Yeah. And what's even harder is to discern what news is real and what you should not retweet and what you should not 
take as fact because there are a lot of aviation Airing accounts. on the side of caution. Yeah, a lot of aviation accounts out there that will just tweet whatever they think is reality. And, and you should probably approach that with an ounce of caution. And in this case, not exercise that caution. It turns out the story was completely fabricated. Yeah, just plain wrong. Yep. Speaking of composite aircraft and repainting it, Qatar Airways put their second A350 back in the air for the first time this week. Their second repainted and repaired A350. They did a flight test out of Doha. So hopefully look for those to be back in service soon. That's some good news on the composite paint front. Wonderful. Some not so good news on the composite aircraft front. The space jet that was at Moses Lake in Washington, the Mitsubishi space jet, one of the flight test vehicles that was there, has now been scrapped. Ooh, yeah. That kind of happened quickly, I feel like, after yeah. the program was terminated. I was, as I said, I was just in Nagoya earlier this week, which was the home of Mitsubishi Heavy Industries, I believe, and where the, the base for the space jet was. And I, I forgot to kind of go to the airport, poke around, look for any space jet MRJ memorabilia that they may have been selling in the airport. Rip something and, off the wall. Yeah, I needed to take something. Yeah. And unfortunately, <laughs> I forgot to do that. And then later that day, I saw the news of the space jet being broken up unceremoniously. But tragic for an airplane that <laughs> never even really got Never found an audience. Service. No. Never found was, an it audience. It was never going to happen. But you hate to see it broken up like that. But it's got yeah. some valuable metals and pieces inside that maybe they'll make their way into another aircraft. There you go. And circle of life. Big, sad as it is. We close the show with a big thank you to everyone who visited our new flightradar24.com beta site over the past week. It's been fantastic to see people interacting with the site, getting to use it, sending us feedback, lots of helpful feedback on bugs that users have found that we've either already fixed and put on the site or are in the process of fixing. Lots of great suggestions about things to modify or add in future releases. So that's been a lot of fun to read through. So thank you to everyone who listened last week and then visited the site. If you haven't visited the site yet, there'll be a link in the show notes, but you can always go to flightradar24.com slash open beta and go poke around there and absolutely leave some feedback for us. Good, bad, ugly. Let us know what you like, what you don't, and what still needs work. So thank you everyone for that. And, and we hope you're enjoying that. Wait, one more thing. So yeah. I had just realized that my email had been signed out for the past week. So I have 137 messages to scroll through. And one of them I see that, I can't believe you didn't tell me this, but Northern Pacific Airways actually announced its first routes or route. <laughs> and do you yes. know what that route is? I do. And, and we actually got some inside scoop on on why. Oh, did you talk about this last week? And I didn't listen no, to No, no, oh. we, we didn't really talk about it last week. But we did some follow-up this week, and there's a great post on the blog that kind of explains what's happening. Oh. But give the listeners the root news. So, Northern Pacific, which is yep. coming North off- North and Pacific Northern area. Pacific, yep. using 757s that acquired from ex-American Airlines, and some of them were used to belong to US Airways. They are flying mm -hmm. from, I'm checking my notes here- Los yep. Angeles to Las Vegas, which is decidedly not Pacific or Northern in any way, on a route that already has an absolute metric ton 
of competition. This is huh. real, apparently. On Ontario, yep. not even LAX, yep. Ontario to Las Vegas. <laughs> What's happening there? What was in the blog that I missed? Because apparently I'm, my email broke for the last week. That's okay. So long story short, they have to do something with the planes and they want to get them in the air. So they've decided to fly them between Ontario, California and Las Vegas. They're going to fly into Vegas on a Friday. They're going to make the aircraft available for a charter service on a Saturday and hope that a casino wants to charter the aircraft. And then they're going to fly back from Vegas to California on Sunday. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. Basically, the closure of Russian airspace completely blew up their plan because now they need ETOPS if they're going to make it work to go to Japan. And that takes a lot more work and a lot more effort and changes the business model a bit. So they're still working on that, but they've got the planes, they've got the people, and they want to start flying. So now they're going to fly this route and they say that people are buying tickets. Okay. But as we know, people buying tickets does not usually always equate to making money. And this is one of those routes, Los Angeles to Las Vegas, that is not typically a moneymaker. I wish them luck. I'm just telling you what I know. Okay. I and had I to wish... call that one out because I, I, I almost <laughs> – I, I couldn't believe that. What? <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh. Breaking news to Jason and some helpful information for everyone out there. But if you do fly Northern Pacific, drop us an email and let us know how it goes. This has been episode 207 of AvTalk. Jason is back from Japan and is now sorely due for a nap. So hopefully by the time the podcast comes out this week, he will have woken up. I am Ian Pechnik here once again, as always, with Jason Rabinowitz. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.